Well, dear friends, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Psalm 4. We're finally going in order now. We went from 2 to 1 to 3, and now we're moving ahead. And that will hopefully be what we continue to do. Psalm 4, and we'll be looking at this psalm in its entirety. Before we read the Scripture, let us ask the Lord to draw near to us and give us understanding. Heavenly Father, we come and we plead with You that You would open our eyes to see wonderful things in Your Word. Would You take this particular passage of Scripture that You've written down for our instruction, and would You use it to teach us? Would You use it to rebuke and correct us? Would You train us in righteousness through this that You have given to the strength of our soul and to Your glory? For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Psalm 4, brethren, this is God's Word. To the choir master with stringed instruments, Psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies, Selah? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for Himself. The Lord hears when I call to Him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds and be silent, Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thus far, God's word, and may he take it and seal it tonight to our hearts. We are very early in our study of Psalms, and yet the theme of conflict already abounds. Psalms 1 and 2, you remember we called them the gateway to the Psalter with their foundational motifs. They introduce us to this struggle that there are two types of people, the righteous and the wicked in conflict, Psalm 1, or those who kiss the Son and take refuge in Him, or those who rebel against Yahweh's Christ, Psalm 2. Now, of course, these two groups of people take us back to Genesis chapter 3, where every son of Adam is either under the devil's sway or by grace of the seed of the woman. And just as the pronouncement of a coming Redeemer came in Genesis chapter 3, and yet a state of perpetual conflict between the two seeds, just as that led at once to a Cain and Abel rumble, so this overarching theme leads to the conflict we see in Psalms 3 and 4. Now, the battle lines in Psalm 3 were clear because we were given information in the introduction. David, the man after God's own heart, is on the run from his mutinous and murderous son Absalom. Absalom, of course, is just one of the many who is opposing David as king. But David found peace in Yahweh, His shield, His glory, the lifter of His head, the God who answered prayer. In Psalm 4, we have no historical introduction. However, for centuries, commentators have noted the connection between Psalms 3 
and 4. Psalm 3 focuses on David's physical danger in view of Absalom's pursuit. And Psalm 4 focuses on the lies and humiliation behind this evil assault on David. Further, there's an interesting movement of time between the two Psalms. In Psalm 3, through answered prayer, David gained confidence to lie down and sleep. And then he awakes, Psalm 3 verse 5, because Yahweh sustained him, and now David is fortified even against 10,000 coming against him. Psalm 3 has thus been called a morning prayer. But now, Psalm 4 turns us again to the night. It comes up twice in the psalm. Once as David tells men what to ponder on their beds. And then again in verse 8, when David resolves to lie down and sleep in peace. Now we should note the rising and falling of David's emotions, and maybe you'll find some comfort in this, that you're like David. Peace in the morning after prayer, Psalm 3, then struggle again in the day, and then peace regained through prayer in the evening, Psalm 4. Well, let's look at this rise and fall, and particularly the evening prayer here, and let's see three things in the passage together. We begin with appeals to God in verse 1. Now, evening is certainly the occasion of the psalm, and we're going to end in peace. However, we start with a tumultuous situation terrorizing David at the present, which is stirring him in fervent cry to the Lord. Look at how he begins very boldly. Verse 1, Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Now, right out of the gate, David has an operating assumption that we should all note. And it's this, he expects God to answer. He is a deeply flawed man wrestling with the consequences of his own sin, but he still believes that God hears him, God cares about him, and God is active to pursue justice for him. Now that's a striking feature of David's opening appeal. He prays because he knows God. He has a relationship with God a God who has come to David in covenant mercy. And he trusts that the Lord's eye, his watchful care, attends to him, and God is listening to me. Further, David believes that the Lord pities the oppressed. He addresses God as the God of my righteousness. That is, the God who himself is righteous, who does what is right and upholds justice, but also the God who protects my righteousness, my integrity. David is expecting that God is going to come to his aid because God cares about doing what is right on behalf of his people. And yes, it's true, David's experiencing the consequences of his own adultery and murder. What's happening here is what God said would happen. The sword, Nathan had told him, will never leave your house. But Absalom's actions are still unjust and treasonous. <clears throat> yes, David's a sinful man, but David has relative innocence in this matter. Nothing justifies Absalom's assault on the throne, assault against Yahweh's very anointed. So David is being falsely accused and slandered and unjustly renounced. Now, what happens with us when we are maligned and mistreated? What's our natural, fleshy response? Well, knowing my own heart, and I'm going to assume you're like me, it's twofold. First, we complain 
to others. We tell everyone about the mistreatment we are receiving, and then we seek to get even. We have a pattern of hunting for a pound of flesh, making an opponent's pay. And that payment can be in cutting words, or it can be even worse in the icy silence, which might as well be the death sentence. You're dead to me, and I'm not going to talk to you at all. We can all slip into vindictiveness and to believe that we are the defender of our own integrity. But the truth is, and David recognizes it, God is my defender. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. He is my shield and buckler. He is the God who can be trusted to do what is right with respect to me. And David believes that about God. His appeals arise from the belief that God looks after and defends his people. Brethren, do we believe that? And I don't mean, do you mutter the truth that God is just, God loves righteousness. Do you actually believe that God cares about you, that He cares about your hurts, about the mistreatments that have come against you? Do we believe that God can and will come to our aid and that we can entrust our hearts to Him, we can pour out all of our struggles and He cares? Why should we believe that? Well, note a reason David gives that drives him into prayer. Second line of verse 1. You have given me relief when I was in distress. The Hebrew is very picturesque. Uh, The word distress means a tight place, like a squeeze. And he says, "In, in the squeeze, you have made it wide for me. In other words, David can look at the past and he can say, when I was in a vice, Lord, when the walls of trouble were pressing in on me, your hand took the providential crowbar and you gave me room to breathe. You opened up a way for me to move. And just think about how many times in David's life the Lord had done this, particularly when David's on the ropes with Saul. And then God suddenly gave a way of escape. David has seen God's relief come repeatedly. And the past pattern of God's deliverance now fuels his prayer. God's former dealings with you fueling your prayers. Brethren, can we look back and see in times of distress that God answered God defended me. God helped me. God sustained. God gave light in the darkness. God vindicated my cause. By the way, this is something of the value of pondering providence. We don't do this very well in our age. We don't ponder virtually anything. But our forefathers in the faith wrote a lot about this. Pondering providence. Learning to give thanks. A lot of them kept prayer journals where they could record answered prayer so they could see look at what God has done the point here is God hasn't changed when he was a God who gave me relief in the past and who heard my cry well he's still the same God and on that basis David comes and appeals and he cries out be gracious to me and hear my prayer now David has no claim on that which he seeks the grace of God but he comes to God knowing that God is gracious. God has revealed himself as the God who hears prayer. So he rests on God's character. Now, do you see, dear friends, how David, urgent in appeal, 
as he recognizes he has no resources, focuses his eyes on God. God's character. God's past help. God's mercies. God's kindness. All that fills his mind. Are our minds filled with God when we come to pray? Or is just are we just rattling on about ourselves? We have better promises than David had as he prayed this prayer. You know, the author of Hebrews says, in view of our sympathizing Savior, our great high priest who has cleansed us and understands us, he tells us, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Why confidence? Because through Jesus' cleansing blood, we're purified and accepted. We belong near to God. And what will we find when we boldly draw near to the throne of grace? We find that we will receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Why do we believe prayer is a means of grace? It's that verse right there. As we boldly approach, God in Christ gives us mercy and grace to help in our time of need. What a beautiful and staggering truth. Our sovereign king, the reigning Christ, is ready to pour out grace on us when we are needy. And the Lord isn't stingy. He's ready to give it to you again. So as you come again, He meets you with fresh mercy and fresh grace in your time of need. Well, the simple question is, are we, like David, appealing to Him? Do we have operating assumptions? Do we have a default setting that drives us to prayer? Because we believe God knows us, God cares for us, God defends us, and God hasn't changed in these particular ways. If we believe these things, shouldn't we have an impulse to pray? Perhaps our failure to pray is actually rooted in our unbelief. But this is the value of something we don't like. The vice. No one likes trouble. But the squeeze of affliction shows us we're not sufficient in ourselves. And in the believer, it serves the purpose of driving us to God, the very God who listens. Appeals to God. But then secondly, see with me. Admonitions to men. There are going to be three of these under this section. David, beginning in verse 2, first appeals to slanderers. Verse 2, O men, how long shall my honor be turned to shame? There's a grief here, a righteous exasperation of those having contempt for David's honor. Though David has been given a position of authority by God, he has the honor he has because God gave it to him. These people now seek his humiliation. They want David denounced and walking in disgrace. And of course, it's hard not to see a connection between David and great David's greater son in this type of approach. Though the honor or the glory of Jesus was veiled on this earth, that is, he in flesh had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him, his glory was still evident, wasn't it? He spoke as no man spoke. He did miracles like none had ever done before. He confounded his enemies. He showed compassion to the down and out. His authority was evident all the time. 
But what did his hostile opponents do? They aimed to turn his honor into shame by having him crucified. The most degrading penalty known on earth. They heaped shame upon him. And yet, as here with David, the cry, how long, indicates at some level the foolishness of these actions. David is appealing to these slanderers, why do you carry on with this foolishness when God has shown himself to be the defender of the king? And David's how long appeal continues, how long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He's asking them, why are you captivated with vanity, with worthlessness? Why do you devote your life and energies to what is patently false? In this case, is there any promise from God to Absalom that he's going to be the king? No. Is there any prophet spelling out David's downfall like had been done with Saul? No. Has David ceased to be God's anointed? No. Then why do you spew what is false against him and build up yourselves in these lies? Didn't the Jewish leadership do the same thing to an even greater degree with Jesus? They had no charges to bring against him that were legitimate, so what did they do? They made stuff up. And they said ridiculous things, like he casts out demons by Beelzebul. They saw his power, and yet they put all their energy into lying about him and slandering him and aiming to bring him down that they might prevail. Brethren, this is the M.O. of the devil and his minions. The devil is the father of lies. There is no truth in him. And he gives his whole existence, all of his energy, and total futility, by the way, to clever deceptions. Now, it should still arrest us when we hear the lies of the world coming against believers. But in a one sense, it really shouldn't surprise us. Because this is the way the devil works in the sons of disobedience. They spend all their energy uttering what is false. And with all these lies coming at the people of God, that's very depressing. But here's the comfort. When lies litter the landscape about the servants of God, it's verse 3. And David's talking to the slanderers. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now the word translated godly, we might render the covenant man or the covenant person. The Lord has set apart the covenant man for himself. It's the Hebrew word hasid, which is related to hesed, covenant love. And the hasid, the godly or covenant one, is the one who has received the hesed, covenant love of the Lord. He then loves the Lord and the Lord loves him. So will these enemies promoting shame and slander succeed? Can they prevail over Yahweh himself whose covenant love is on his covenant man? And the answer, of course, is no. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the great comfort. David, again, speaking to the slanders, know that God has set apart the godly for himself. So David then shouts at the enemy, the Lord hears when I call to him. Do you see in the midst of praying how David has prayed himself into confidence? He started the psalm asking the Lord to answer me when I call. Now he's telling the wicked, God answers me when I call. Perhaps there's 
an underlying thought here too. He doesn't hear you, you slanderers. You are scheming, conniving, and plotting, but there's no hope for you. The covenant God is listening to me. He set me near to Himself. What a beautiful truth this is. If we are God's people, whatever enemies may say and do, we have been set apart for the Lord. That is, He loves us. He's taken us to Himself. Now, of course, there's a unique thing here with David. As Yahweh's anointed king, he has a special protection. And the verb here used for set apart is used in Exodus 8, 9, and 11 to talk about the distinction that Yahweh made with Israel and Egypt. Do you remember that distinction? Israel didn't experience the plagues while Egypt did. Well, except for one the plague of the firstborn, which was to teach Israel a crucial lesson. And that lesson comes home in Jesus. For Jesus, the covenant one, faces a plague for us. He tastes the wrath of enemies. He tastes the very wrath of God. But what does God do to reveal that Jesus is set apart for himself? That a distinction is made with Jesus? He sees no corruption in the grave power of Sheol doesn't rule over him, but rather Jesus is raised, exalted, seated on the throne. And this is proof that he is set apart for the Father. Now, we're not Jesus, and we're not David. Brethren, if you're in Christ, we also have the comfort of being set apart. When our accuser comes to shame us and to slander us, what is our hope? It's found in the logic of Paul's argument in Romans 8. It is God who justifies who is to condemn. Remember how Paul follows that statement up? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who is interceding for us. What does that mean? A distinction has been made. We, the people of Christ, the godly ones, those loved by God and who love Him back, we are protected and preserved by the intercession of Jesus. Do you remember how much this matters with Peter when Jesus tells Peter the fall he's going to have? Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Our God has set His people apart for Himself and He hears when we call because we come in Jesus' name. Therefore, our enemies, whatever they say about us, are not going to succeed. Brethren, praise God for that. Lies will not linger forever over us. We will be delivered. So David speaks to the slanderers, and then he speaks to the hotheads, I'll call them, in verses 4 and 5. These seem to be Davidic supporters who are stewing in their anger over all the evils being done in the land. And David tells them, verse 4, be angry and do not sin. Now we probably remember Paul's quotation of this in Ephesians 4. And Paul's point will focus on the swiftness of dealing with the anger. But here David gives more direction on how to be angry and yet not sin. It is possible to be angry and not sin. How do we do that? Well, first, keep your thoughts to yourself. 
Look at what he says. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds. The righteous man, as Proverbs will tell us, ponders how to answer, but the fool just spews forth folly. The righteous man plans his way. The fool doesn't give any attention to his steps. So there's a need here before we act to listen to our conscience before God. We need to speak to our hearts, to bring the truth to bear on ourselves as we are troubled in the night. And then we can keep from sinning by heeding the last command of verse 4. We ponder in our hearts on our beds and then, note the language, and be silent. Keep your mouth shut. Now, we all can sin in our thoughts as we ponder in silence. But sin increases when we start talking. For words are many, sin is seldom absent. In fact, if you want to do a fascinating study on sin, every major passage that talks about sin talks about the tongue. It's unbelievable how you would see this. If, once you see it, once I tell you that, if you take it to heart, you're going to see it everywhere. The response we need to have to injustice is first to think and second to be quiet. Now, how are we doing here? Are you like me, slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to become angry when I think that I'm wrong? Well, we have to hear the admonition to us. Just think, don't speak. Reflect, consider, examine yourself before God. But then comes the active, positive action. Verse 5, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. Here David tells us how to turn the injustices that's sticking in our crawl to God. We set our eyes on God. We come before Him in praise and confession. A right sacrifice acknowledges both my own sin and His mercy. But then we actively rely on the Lord. We lean on Him. For while injustice can rightly anger us, it's the Lord who can ultimately do something about it. And that's the truth we often forget when we start talking because we think we're going to do something about it. No, it's the Lord who can do something about it. So we put our trust in Him. Isn't this the posture of Jesus Himself when facing the horrific injustice on the cross? First Peter 2, while He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten. He was grieved, no doubt, by the sin committed against him, but he was silent toward man. But he kept entrusting himself to him, to his Father, who judges justly. We must learn at the end of the day, as the hardships of a fallen world weigh on us, and we're upset about it, to give things to our covenant God. We don't need to find a venting partner and spew all our unfiltered frustrations. There's a word that the Bible has for that, and calling it what it really is. You probably know. Complaining. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, let no rotten word come out of our mouths, but only what is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What grace are we imparting with our angry complaints? Zero. However, we can take our complaints to God. We can remain silent, trust in the Lord, and give it to Him. 
I want you to understand, David is not advocating here a pattern of repression. Stuff your troubles and keep your mouth shut. No, what he's telling us is, don't lash out. Be quiet and give things to God. And brethren, this is great counsel. Spew less, pray more. Spew less, pray more. And then David admonishes a third group of people, the discouraged. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us some good? Now, this is a pessimistic phrase from those in the pit. Many don't believe things will get better. It'll all work out. The sun will come out tomorrow. Those make for trite little things to put on your social media and cheery songs, but few actually embrace what those words are saying. We are worriers, and we're easily burdened. And it doesn't even have to be our trouble to burden us. We can look at the troubles of other people, perhaps people in the church, a number of people experiencing sorrow and sickness and various sufferings, and we can fall into a pit ourselves over the magnitude of the trouble. And when the darkness of distress kind of moves into squeeze us and we seem to see trouble everywhere, we can start to wonder, will God ever reverse these ruinous situations? Will blackness lighten all of our days? Will the trouble last forever? Will I always be sad? These are questions the psalmist asks. How long must I have sorrow in my heart all the day? Lord, will you forget us forever? When is evil's advance going to slow down? When is cultural rot going to stop? Have any of you ever felt this way? Have there been days of despair when good things seemed a million miles away? When the trouble has been so thick, it's as if light just couldn't penetrate. It can be this way for God's people. And yet notice how David responds to the discouraged. He's in a dark time himself, but he, he doesn't allow defeatism to dominate him. He bursts into prayer. Verse 6, the second half. Lift up your face, or excuse me, lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. His friends are sighing for better days and are doubtful, but David pleads for God's light in the darkness. And he paraphrases the middle line of the Aaronic benediction in number 6. You probably heard it so often, it's kind of sticking in your brain. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord do what? Make His face to shine upon us. That's the idea here. David turns the blessing that God has pronounced into a prayer. And he says, shine on us like the sun, O Lord. Give us a sense of your light, your love, your help, your presence. Make us to feel the warmth of your affection. For what does David recognize that the despairing have forgotten? They are forgetting, we often forget, that the Lord is the source of good. And He delights to bless His people. He's not a distant, cold deity who really doesn't like giving you anything. No, He delights to give good gifts to His children. His people are to Him a crown of beauty, a treasured possession. We are the apple of His eye. So believing these right things about God, David pleads for God's light and God's approval and God's comfort. Now, as we reflect on David's three admonitions to, to men, what is the key we should learn? When wicked men attack, what is our comfort? The Lord hears when we call. 
so we can pray. When we're angry, and justifiably so, what can we do with our anger? We are quiet, that is, we don't lash out, and we pray, we trust the Lord. When we're defeated and all is dark, what do we do? We pray, we plead for God's light to shine upon us. Are you getting the message? David began the psalm again, asking for God to answer, but then he starts saying, the Lord does answer when I call, and therefore, whatever trouble I'm in, I should pray, pray, and pray some more, and so should you. Brethren, are we a praying people? When you're distressed, you're derided, when you're downright mad, when you're dejected, what do you do? You pray. You get your eyes on the Lord because He relieves, He hears, He set you apart for Himself, He's worthy of trust, and He delights to shine on you, to comfort you and do you good. And what will we gain when we do this? We'll see finally, much more briefly, assurance from above. Verses 7 and 8. David began in sorrow and distress, but he ends now in joy and peace. With his eyes on the Lord, David declares, verse 7, you have put more joy, more joy in my heart than they have, meaning his enemies, when their grain and wine abound. Now, the godly would acknowledge that abounding grain and wine are gifts from the Lord. The wicked don't see it that way. They see economic abundance as the result of their own hard work, and they are externally happy. They rejoice when they're cupboards are full and wine freely flows. But the joy that David has here is an internal joy. Not as a result of more stuff. It's a joy in the heart. And note that this joy is not something that David has worked up through the power of positive thinking. Now just for kicks, I googled how to be joyful to see what the world would say. It was about what I expected. But I'll tell you it anyway. The counsel consisted of things like smile. Be good to yourself. Exercise. Stop worrying. Oh, we wish it were this that simple. Take slow breaths. And my favorite, drink plenty of water. <laughs> Isn't that your mom's counsel to everything? Some of this counsel could help, but it forgets a crucial component. Joy can't be produced. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Joy, as David notes here, is a divine gift. He says, you, you, God, have put more joy in my heart. And you see, the joy is irrespective of circumstances. David is still in trouble, and yet his joy is lavish and abundant. The joy or happiness of the wicked is always tied to something in this world. And that means, of course, it will always fly away. But for David, joy is independent of any external factor. In fact, he says he has expanding joy while he's facing this trouble. And how can that be? It's because, brethren, our joy is rooted in God Himself and in His unending covenant mercies. John Owen has a masterful section in his book on communion with God where he talks about this very thing, about how Christians go around with a heaviness in our soul. Why do we do that? He says it's our sin because we forget our privileges. What is the privilege that David has been articulating in this psalm? God is for us. God hears our prayer. 
And furthermore, we don't hope for only things in this life. A life full of trouble, even when the grain and wine are abounding. We have a hope beyond this life. And that hope nourishes joy in the heart no matter what you're going through. This is why Paul can rejoice in prison and tell everybody else, rejoice in the Lord, I say again, rejoice. It's why Nehemiah can say the joy of the Lord is my strength when Israel is a mess. It's why Peter can mention to his readers that we have a joy inexpressible and full of glory while they are facing a multitude of trials. Well, do we have this kind of joy? A joy that the wicked can't snuff out. A joy that is rooted in a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And no enemy can take that away. David is rejoicing in God, but he's also saying, I have peace. And we close with this. In peace, he says, verse 8, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, sometimes we have a moment of peace in our panic. Maybe for a few hours before bedtime, we think a few positive thoughts. Maybe we had a happy ending in a movie we watched, or a good book, or a good game, and our team won. And then maybe for a little while, some calmness sets in so we can rest. That is not the peace David's describing. Because this is a lasting peace. It rests on us, and it stays. Why? Because the Lord is our protector. That doesn't change for the people of God, no matter what we're going through. With this kind of focus, Ralph Davis in his brief comments on Psalm 4 tells a story relating about Nicholas Ridley as he was facing martyrdom. It's October 15, 1555, and this English reformer, Nicholas Ridley, was lying in a dingy cell where he had been for about 18 months, waiting to be burned at the stake the following day. That night, his brother offered to stay with him during the season of waiting through the night until the next morning. Nicholas refused, saying he intended to go to bed and sleep as peacefully as he ever did in his life. Why? Because he knew, though the next day would be his last, it is the Lord who makes me dwell in safety. The peace that God gives is not circumstantial. It's an objective truth. Oh, that our hearts would only subjectively respond to that. God has given us a peace that lasts and can't be taken away through Christ. He has established our peace. We are at peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have it. Well, are we going to embrace it and then lie down and rest? Whether a mutinous and murdering son is trying to kill you or the roaring lion is coming to hunt you to tell you of your sin. Brother, may we learn to entrust ourselves to our God, whose covenant mercies never cease. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give praise to you for the benefits with which you have blessed us in Christ. We know that in him we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And where those benefits are the sure knowledge that you are for us, having set us apart for yourself and that you hear our prayers, that you have granted to us hope and joy and peace, would you then help us to live as though we have hope and joy and peace 
Meet us, O Lord, in all of our difficulties and be the God who lifts our head. For we pray it in Christ's name and all of God's people said, Amen.